You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Your Excellencies, uh, ladies and gentlemen, very welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and this lecture on 10-year anniversary of the Eastern Partnership. It is my name is Martin Krog. Uh, I'm the head of the Russia and Eurasia program here with the institute and it is my great pleasure to introduce our two speakers today. Um, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Armenia, Mr. Zorab Natsakanyan, and Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Vadim Ristaiko. Um, we uh, will have about 30 minutes or so uh, uh, for each uh, minister, after which we have uh, intended to leave room and discussion uh, and leave some room also for discussion and questions. Uh, again, very welcome. Thank you for coming here to our institute and to Stockholm. Um, and um, Mr. Uh, Zorab Natsakanyan, please. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much for tackling my name with such ease. It's not an easy thing. <laughs> I had to practice it. <laughs> and... Uh, Indeed, it's a great pleasure to be here, and the opportunity, the, the reason why we are here is extremely important. We are uh, assessing 10 years of the Eastern Partnership, and we're trying to collectively think about what kind of Eastern Partnership we would want to see for the next 10 years. The interesting part of this is that our talk is happening at a time when we are also having in mind, commemorating, celebrating 30 years of the fall of the Berlin Wall. I represent that generation of a young man who uh, entered life or adult life uh, with a sense of optimism, with the triumph of freedom and the strong belief and commitment that now everything will be all right. Now, as it happened, not everything was all right. But the good thing that happened is that Armenia, along with others, including the six Eastern partners, regained, re-established its sovereignty and its independence. Um, when we became independent, I think it was a general consensus in our public that the kind of a country we want is the country which respects freedoms, which respects human rights, which uh, wants to build a model, which is what we know from the European experience. Uh, there was a lot of good talk and good intention, but also a lot of problems because we realized that democracy means institutions, that it means uh, tradition, that it means commitment, that it means political will. And uh, over many years since, it was an interesting exercise. We have been working for our membership, for example, in the Council of Europe, and it required a lot of exercise to prepare our institutions for the membership in the Council of Europe. 
We have been working with the European Union since day one, which has been a very important participant, a supplier to our capacities to build such institutions since day one. But uh, it took some time for us to realize that we are the actual owners of this process. That uh, institution building is a very painful process. We have made many mistakes over 28 years. We have had some very tragic moments in our democracy building. We are a nation which likes to protest. Some of those protests were, had very sad outcomes. We had uh, a situation in which some commitment to democracy and human rights was not sufficient and was not consolidated. And the negative practices which were strangling, strangling this process were taking over. So we have known corruption, we have known oligarchy, we have known uh, abuse of power, and as I'm saying, we have also known some tragedy. In 2008, for example, we had a situation when uh, the protests resulted in 10 deaths. We had a situation before that, in 96, in 98, in 2003, and so on and so forth. Um, then, interestingly, we were also observing an evolution. Evolution and the generational evolution. I don't know how many of you noted, but there was 2015 in Armenia, and it was the time when uh, somehow the young people came out in the streets and they had a totally different approach to protest. I sometimes say we had the habit of a, the Bolshevik style of a protest that you have to break down everything and build everything anew. And then we had a new culture in which the young generation came out and said our demands are very precise, very specific and our protest is of a totally different nature. That was a very interesting moment in the evolution of our democratic capacity. And of course, 2018, that was the time when uh, we, the nation, have gone through a very, uh, you know, emotionally charged process. Um, the Velvet Revolution. The Velvet Revolution was peaceful, non-violent. How did it happen? I think the very important part of it is that it was part of the evolution. Evolution, the capacity of the public, of the public institutions, of the civil society, of the media, of every such institution in the public, which, was, which has shown a degree of maturity to absorb shock. And that's the most important, in my view, most important reason why it was possible to achieve a peaceful, nonviolent revolution. The capacity of the public to absorb shock and to achieve results. So when we did the revolution, there was a big question. Who are these people? What the hell is going on in Armenia? And uh, where is the color? And what is the botanical expression of what is happening in Armenia. The Prime Minister lately has defined it in a very funny way. He said, you know, when the revolution happened, some of our partners were saying, 
who did this revolution, and some of our other partners were saying, if we didn't do that, who else could do that? The trouble, or rather the advantage with the Armenian revolution is a strictly domestic affair. It was a strictly Armenian matter. There was only one flag waved throughout this, you know, in the streets and squares of Armenia, and that was the Armenian tricolor. And that was when uh, the government stepped in and received a huge mandate from the public. Huge mandate, which was a huge responsibility. Is a huge responsibility because subsequently we had elections and 71% in an election is not, an, is, is not a small thing. It's a mandate, it's a trust, and it's a responsibility. Now, throughout the first months, the government had been absolutely focused on delivering on those most immediate demands reflected in the mandate. The questions of corruption, the questions of equal space, equal opportunities in economic and social life, uh, the question of uh, justice, the question of elections, and the political will has been, has demonstrated its power, that you can address corruption head-on, if you have the political will, that you can organize elections which are accepted by the public and by the political forces, and that is you, when you have shown the political will. But that is not enough. That's only the beginning. It's only a first step. Because consolidating, sorry, because consolidating, consolidating these institutions is the most important challenge and the most important objective. To make sure that irrespective of political will, the political institutions, the public institutions, do gain strength to sustain the model which is based on respect and strength of democracy, human rights, rule of law. And uh, this is what we live through and live with today in Armenia. We have a very big challenge, for example, the judiciary. The judiciary is one such example in which we need to achieve a genuinely independent, impartial judiciary, which enjoys the reasonable trust of the public. There can be no 100% trust, obviously, because in the judiciary someone wins and someone loses, and, uh, but reasonable trust in the judiciary is the very, very important objective that we have today. And this is where also it shows the way in which we work in our international agenda. Our partnerships with the European Union, with the Council of Europe, with the individual members in the European Union are extremely important exactly, exactly for the purpose of consolidating our democratic tradition in Armenia. We've come to a certain level, we're building on, with full confidence we carry on. Then, what is happening if there is no geopolitics in our revolution? and we denied strictly any geopolitical context to our revolution, what is our foreign policy then? Our foreign policy is built 
in a very careful way to consolidate, to sustain the consolidation of our national security architecture. Now to, you know, to demonstrate the point, we have two fundamental challenges to our security. One challenge is the unresolved Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And that's a very serious security challenge. The other challenge is the Turkey threat. It's a security threat. The non-existence of relations with Turkey, the consistent denial of justice in the case of Turkey, the uh, failure to build on what we have invested in with the what many of you would know, the Zurich Protocols, they, in combination with all those factors, well, some other factors, they represent serious security threat to Armenia. We have built our security architecture in a way which is complex, which is not easy, but which is justified. We have very important allied relationship with Russia. We work with Russia in various integration processes, including the security arrangement within the, collect within the collective security treaty organization. Russia is a security supplier to the region and to Armenia. That is one important dimension. The second important dimension is the relations with the European Union and its member states. Now, when we say consolidating the role of the European Union in consolidating Armenia's development agenda, Armenia's democratic agenda, strengthening its institutions, being a partner and a participant in this process for 28 years, we look at it through the security prism. And the European Union in that context represents an important security provider, security supplier to Armenia in that particular context. The other important dimension in our security architecture is the relations with the United States. Also, for 28 years, an important participant in the regional processes, an important uh, um, participant in Armenia's development agenda, given its role and uh, significance in regional affairs, also uh, a deterrent of the threats, including, for example, the threat of Turkey. Uh, Russia, a member of the European Union, France, and the United States, they uh, are the co-chairmanship of the OSCE Minsk Group, Minsk Group, which is the established internationally, uh, supported internationally established uh, and recognized uh, platform mandate within which we are tackling the, uh, you know, the peaceful resolution of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. In fact, a very rare thing, because uh, despite the many disagreements, Russia, France, and the United States work in a, in a very good way, in a very good consensus within this format. And that is very valuable. Uh, then, to continue with our, the way in which we build our architecture, we have very important strategic neighborhood with Georgia and with Iran. Also, with, with Georgia, we have, we, have had a, we, we, we have a very important agenda, very important neighborhood, very dynamic relations. Over this year only, I think we had so many interactions, meetings, discussions on so many issues, and the agenda is from very specific neighbors. 
who have known each other for many, many centuries, from very specific to very strategic. The same concerns Iran, with Iran also a history of centuries of relations, history of coexistence, history of mutual respect. One of the best examples when Christianity and Islam live together in harmony and mutual respect. We have an important presence in Iran with important cultural heritage there, our, human, our, our compatriots. So this is the architecture within which we sustain our security. Um, of course, I, uh, I, 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 for the sake of time, I will be rather short on, uh, uh, I'd rather skip the other dimensions of our foreign policy, very important relationship with others in Asia, in the Middle East, in, 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 in other parts of the world. As a small nation, we invest heavily in multilateralism. We depend on multilateralism. Effective multilateralism is very important. In that context, Eastern Partnership we view exactly as a, an important platform of multilateral cooperation within this context of the European Union uh, and its uh, Eastern partners. I don't like to say neighbors because uh, I would rather insist that Eastern partners are the Eastern flank of Europe because the relationship is built on shared values. On uh, the important question of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, just to make it very clear, from our prism, the issue, the problem concerns the human being. Our focus and our priority is the existential physical security of 150,000 of our compatriots in Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, why would I elevate this to such a critical level of existential physical security? We have reasons for that. We have the 70 years of the Soviet rule, or the rule of, in the times of Soviet Azerbaijan. We have the most devastating time in, uh, at the beginning of the 90s, when we had a critical situation, when uh, uh, there might be no question of Nagorno-Karabakh, because there might be no Nagorno-Karabakh. We are quite cognizant of those facts when 40% of the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh has been taken over, 40% of the population has been wiped out. We have a problem with the continued, you know, as risks of escalation and rhetoric, those, the, the, the epitome of this is the Ramil Safarov case when an Armenian officer was hacked to death in the middle of the night by a Azeri officer at a training course in Hungary. But that's not the end of the story, that's the beginning of the story. Because subsequently, by some arrangement, he was transferred to Azerbaijan and uh, he was received as a hero as, with glorification. So killing an Armenian, deserves glory. That's a very bad message, very bad signal. The attempted aggression in April 2016 
is another very clear indication of why we elevate the question to most serious existential physical security threat. We need peace, and there is no alternative to, to the peaceful settlement of the conflict. Why? Because the alternative is a catastrophe for the entire region. Because Nagorno-Karabakh has the capacity to defend, Armenia has the capacity to defend, and Armenia happens to be the only security guarantor to Nagorno-Karabakh. We are quite cognizant of the capacities of Azerbaijan. So the alternative to peace, easy to conclude what? Therefore, no alternative to the peaceful resolution, and no illusion that the threat of war can have an effect on the progress in negotiations. For us, the absolute priorities are the security and the status of Nagorno-Karabakh. We work within the format of the OSCE means group co-chairmanship. We're quite you know, sensitive and engaging in understanding the way in which Azerbaijan defines its priorities. The most important challenge is to achieve such balance of parameters which represents compatible, um, represents compatible and uh, uh, balanced uh, uh, level of commitments on both sides. We are quite confident about our mandate and our support of the people. We are keen to engage in this, but we have to be very sure that we are achieving such level of agreement that is defendable, that will allow us to engage in a dialogue with our public. Um, on uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, I think what I would also add is uh, throughout this one and a half years since our government stepped in, we have been very active in our engagement in the negotiating process. Uh, we with my counterpart, with my colleague, Elmar Mamadiarov, the foreign minister of Azerbaijan, we have had, you know, uninterrupted process of engagements and work within the OSCE Minsk Group Co-Chairmanship. Our leaders, Prime Minister Pashinyan and President Aliyev, had uh, an important op opportunity of meeting once in Dushanbe. Then uh, we had a formal meeting in, uh, it, that was October last year, then a formal meeting in, uh, in uh, Vienna in March, and uh, then there was lately another opportunity in Ashgabat within the CIS, uh, you know, format, uh, just in the margins, uh, you know. Uh, this is very important because what we also pay attention to is, A, we need an environment conducive to peace. You cannot negotiate peace on the one hand and propagate war on the other. We need to prepare our populations for peace. We need to reduce rhetoric. We need to make sure that the environment is different. We need to make sure that we invest in uh, such measures which reduce or deny the risks of escalation. The October meeting, it was not a meeting actually, it was a conversation that, you know, a meeting that in, in Dushanbe 
has produced a very tangible result. I cannot claim we're totally satisfied because there are still such violations, but there was a significant reduction of ceasefire uh, violations. And that matters. We were very keen to consolidate this, consolidate further to make sure that the, the peace process is taking place within an environment that is conducive to peace. We need to make sure there is more contact. Now we have some programs and hopefully, or some ideas and hopefully that we discuss with Azerbaijan, with coaches, hopefully uh, we will uh, have the opportunity to show such results very soon. You know, we spoke about journalists, we spoke about other such measures. So hopefully we will be able to produce some results. So this is where we are with Nagorno-Karabakh. And it is with full cognizance that peace is absolutely critical for all the parties, without exception. Peace is absolutely critical for region, for each of our nations. Um, coming back to, I know I'm approaching now the limit. And uh, just to finish, I want to come back to what, what we are here for. And that is the relations with the European Union and the Eastern Partnership. As uh, we had good opportunities today to talk about uh, our, uh, you know, uh, taking stock of the past 10 years, trying to sketch out the next 10 years, there are very interesting ideas on this, uh, very important structured con consultation taking place about how to build the next 10 years. There are interesting ideas that we have been supplying the partners. I know Ukraine, have, you know, and, and all others have, uh, um, you know, shared their views and their proposals, their ideas. We have done so on our part. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Hahn, the, the Commissioner for Neighborhood Policy, uh, and, and Federica Mogherini, uh, they have supplied us with their ideas. Sweden and Poland, as the, you know, the initiators of the Eastern Partnership, have also been quite active on this. I think we are building quite a shape of the next 10 years. But I think what is also quite important here is that the past 10 years are different, were different. I started with 30 years back, the sense of optimism. And uh, uh, you remember the, the end of history kind of mentality. And the history happens to be back with vengeance now. That uh, we are in a condition, in a situation, in an environment of a dramatic change in what is happening in the world. And it is very important to be cognizant and to understand how we absorb this and how we build our commitments within this platform to uh, you know, measure it against the change that is happening in the world. So we have had an opportunity to talk about the way in which we square the development and security uh, you know, uh, concerns and agenda of the nations in, in, in this format, uh, in this format of consultations, discussions. Um, the capacity, I think, is that the next 10 years is also a test to our collective capacities. And it's not just about the Eastern partners. It's about what we call common European values, common Euro European commitments, our commitments, our belief in democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. This is a test that 
to what extent will we be able to be faithful to what we have declared as common shared values against the pressures of the global nature? Um, there are specific tools, instruments about the way in which we consolidate small and medium in industry uh, enterprises or digital economies or whichever other way we use all the important mechanisms and instruments. But I think the big challenge is sustainability of values in building these relations of common Europe. Europe, which has known peace after the Second World War for 75 years, but uh, which in fact shows some uh, challenge. Sometimes, is it, is it the limit of the human memory to remember the calamity? The strong leadership that we need, which is cognizant of the alternative of peace. This is also a dimension of Eastern Partnership. As I'm saying, Eastern Partnership isn't a multilateral platform. And it is about Europe. It's not neighborhood, it's Europe. Um, I will stop there. I think I have consumed my 30 minutes. And I'm really very grateful for your attention. And uh, I'm really glad and I'm looking forward to hear my colleague, uh, Vadim, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll have a good interaction on this. Thank you so much. Thank you for the Thank opportunity. Thank you, Sweden. Mr. Vadim Pristaiko, please, you're welcome to come in. Thank you very much. Uh, is it my first visit to Sweden in my diplomatic career, 25 plus years, it just happened this way. I've never been here, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I just want to share with you one, one observation. I, I can't escape you know, noticing how many yellow and blue flags all over the streets. Thank you, I appreciate this, really. Didn't expect it. You know, we've all of us heard the stories of uh, historical connections between Vikings and Ukrainian Cossacks, although there are two different historic eras, but yeah, who cares? But we do, cherish these memories and I have to tell you, share with you a very short uh, funny story when we were, I was working in Washington DC and we were laying flowers to the monument of totalitarianism. For those ones who've been to, to Washington DC, they know this quite tiny, tiny monument. And we were doing it, our embassy with the couple of, of embassies, mostly Europeans, each and every year. Russians were not with us for some strange reasons. They believe that we are laying flowers not for but against them. Although it was not connected immediately, it was rather connected to some uh, previous dictatorships in, in Eastern Asia, although the Russians were very careful of this and sending us note of protest each and every time we would do it with, with mostly European colleagues. The funny part was when the Swedish ambassador took my flowers because he thought that the, the flowers, the, the colors, national colors, were very familiar to him. So I have to fight again, not against totally rooms this time, but against Sweden ambassador, and we, we finally sort out our differences and laid the flowers. So uh, this is you know, showing that we are not that distant relatives from you, and that European partnership is, is close idea to us, although it's a poorly guarded secret that we more or less hate Eastern Partnership. And sorry, as bad news for 10, 10 years of, uh, of the program itself, maybe it's a bit, uh, you know, theatrical exaggeration, uh, but we're still fighting to understand how can it be useful to us and 
sorry, after 30 years of finding our place in new chessboard, we are becoming uh, very pragmatic in Ukraine. In Ukraine, we're trying to understand how it plays in our in our direction. What sort of mechanism we can take and use? How can we bring something to the program which is uh, uniting our, all our six uh, neighbors? I agree with you, rather partners than the neighbors. But if it is called this way, neighborhood, okay, that that's we will we'll live with that. Uh, I know that uh, I can't escape also explaining to you what is going on in Ukraine, just to set up the, the next questions. And uh, it won't take much. Uh, we are in the Minsk process. This is very bad, I believe. Something wrong with the Minsk. It's nothing to do with, with us. It's something really seriously wrong with, with I don't know, Lukashenko, our Russian friends. We, we have to escape this Minsk things. It took us almost uh, five years. You know, somebody in Ukraine is com even comparing the uh, Great Patriotic War, as it was called in Soviet Union, or Second World War, with with our war in East. It's, it's getting very close by the by the chronological matters, and the Ukrainians uh, sometimes uh, reminding us of very funny thing that just just try to 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 hear the beauty of it. Germans helping Ukrainians to fight Russians. That's after after the World War II. You can have it. This the whole idea. You were talking about limits of people's memories, and and that's actually probably the limit. These years after the World War, now we have to fight with the Germans' help against Russians. Unbelievable. And where we are now at this moment, at at this moment of our development of this Minsk process. Uh, as a matter of, of, of numbers, we have more than 100 meetings within the Minsk uh, process. I won't be surprised if you have, if you have the same number. Uh, we are now at at very last moment, even more surely. We will we will fight over the numbers. I believe in the next decades in the Minsk. Uh, we we are coming very close to the uh, Normandy meeting. Probably you read in, in the newspapers that Putin uh, posed some of the uh, requirements for us, for four leaders, to finally meet in Normandy, in Normandy format. This uh, Russia, Ukraine, uh, Germany, and France. Uh, the preconditions were difficult, almost impossible to achieve. We managed. First of all, we had to recognize the, and implement in Ukrainian legislation, so-called Steinmeier's formula. We recently met in Japan with, with my president met with Steinmeier himself. He's now federal federal president of uh, Germany, used to be foreign minister. And ask, do you even remember what Steinmeier formula is? Because each and every taxi driver and hair cutter in Ukraine knows about Steinmeier's formula. And all of them arguing, especially with me as a minister of foreign affairs. All of them know why it is not good, what we've done wrong, and how stupid it was on, on the part of our government to even implement this Steinmeier's formula. The second requirement or expectations from Russians is, is uh, disengage in, in three test, so-called three test areas. In more or less square, one kilometer by one kilometer, in three areas. Very difficult, for, especially for our soldiers who paid with their blood for this. And I have to remind you that we're not fighting over the island somewhere in, in a no, no man's land, where I know river or mountain, or anything, or it's not a religious war. We are on our own territory, defending our own territory. We lost to occupation of Crimea, two million people along with the island itself. 
Now we are talking about 7% of our territory being already occupied and another couple of million people being held hostages and uh, very sick propaganda cloud in this, in this territory. It's on top of 20% of industrial capacity, which this region was responsible for. An export outcome on a, on a level of 23-25% of everything we produce. As a matter of fact, what, what happened to our relations with our closest neighbor, Russia? They lost the biggest buy of indi individual buy of uh, gas, which is more or less the only product they, they produce. They lost, uh, we, we, ne we are never buying, for five years in a row, we are not buying the gas from them directly. We are buying most of the gas which is coming in reverse from Europe. Gas goes from Russia through all our territory to somewhere to, I don't know, Austria, getting back, still cheaper than our former brothers and sisters offering us at the, at the border between Ukraine and Russia. We redirected all our export, the most of it towards Europe. Now Russia is not our partner, biggest partner anymore. It's not even second one. The China is taking place of, of Russian Federation. So if we, we open up our minds and ask Putin, what have you achieved at the end of the story of five years, which costed us Ukrainians 14,000 lives? What, what are gains of, of yours? Political gains? I don't know, you're under sanctions. People are not shaking hands. Some of them dancing at the, at the wedding parties with him, but that's a completely different story. What are the gains? And what, are the, what is the way out? With these things, with these sort of thoughts in mind, we were coming to this Normandy uh, summit, and we believe that this time we, we will have some, some tangible progress. In most of the cases, I have to tell you that I hate this word progress. When Germans and French are talking about progress, they mean mostly that Ukraine will give up. And you know, they will be able to bring back to their businesses, their governments, their societies, the progress that we've been investing in Ukraine politically, economically for all five years, and now we have achieved some progress, meaning that world is over. Thank you very much to everybody. You can go home, which is which is very optimistic way of seeing things, but at least that's what our leaders are expecting from this next next meet, because everybody's at least tired. And we are not people who want to, to fight. We would be happy to make, uh, to fix some things inside the, and our own society. And I have to tell you that we have many, many different things to fix. And now uh, I'm coming to, to Eastern Partnership and, and the cooperation with Europe by itself. Why European Union? Why Europe? Why Eastern Partnership? Why we're very close to it, NATO? Why we are abandoning the project which was pro offered to us by Russia, not just to Ukraine, to all of us around, around, Ukraine, around the Russian Federation, all over the centuries, not in Soviet Union. Please don't make yourself aware of She's thinking even that that the Soviet Soviet idea, Soviet propaganda. No, the Tsarist Russia, the, the Russia before, the Russia after, it was the same project with different chapeaux, the different flags. Idea was the same. At this at this moment, we were tried to regain our independence so many times that we hope that this time we will stand. It will, at least we survived for 30 years, and we we are going to keep it this way. The project which is now offered by Europe, European Union, Western civilization, the uh, security guarantees which are offered by the same civilization. There's something which is very attractive to us. And I understand the, the, the very sensitive situation where our Armenian friends found themselves in a, in a, a different region of the globe. But in our part, we just told Russians, thank you very much, that, that's it. Let us go our own ways.
if you feel some phantom pain of a divorce is going wrong, and you know, we understand sometimes that, you know, how it happens after these divorces, but let's let it at least make it in a civilized way. So that's why we, with all our intentions to become a member of European Union, not a neighbor of European Union, we found for ourselves and we set for ourselves at least three sets of priorities. If we can call them quite loosely, the resilience, decentralization, and transparency. That's what we are coming with to European Union, to Eastern Partnership, to all the mechanisms telling us that's what we can do and that's what we hope that it will work. And I have to tell you that Eastern Partnership is a very useful thing because the way it was vaguely formulated allowed this ambiguity, allowed us to tell Ukrainians, hey, no, we're almost in the European Union. Yeah, Eastern Partnership, European Union, it's not important. Important is the European Union part. And then we can sell back to those Europeans who are not very keen on having new member. Yeah, it's just Eastern Partnership. It's not, it's not serious. I forget it. So it works. At least it's been working so far. What we'll be doing in the next 10 years, we will see. So back to the resilience, decentralization, and transparency. Resilience, uh, we can talk in military terms. And, you know, I remember 1991. Ukrainian army of a million people. You can imagine the force. Yes, under fat, under trained, but million people. And on top, nuclear third biggest arsenal. Bigger than combined Chinese, Britain, and France. We now we don't have this arsenal, which will, I believe, tip the, the, the scale if anybody would decide to come to the neutral uh, to the nuclear state and a million people in army. Now we have around 100,000 people. So we decrease it 10 times and facing the, the, the foreign invasion. So not many believe that in 2014 that Ukraine can withstand the pressure of Russians in the occupation, after especially the occupation of Crimea. But I, I had a very interesting conversation with one of our colleagues from the former uh, stans. I wouldn't call which stan. I mean, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, all the stans. We will loosely call them stans easier to, to explain this in many, many occasions. But I was surprised when this particular person told me, you know what, your example is very interesting and, and it's not just optimistic encouraging to us. I asked, what do you mean? Actually, we, at, at least at, at, at last we understood that somebody can tell Russians no. That was interesting, a revelation. After 30 years, these people, were, they knew that with all our attempts, all, all our revolutions, and we can compete here in a number of revolutions, at least in creative names we, we took for them. They told us that, yes, you can actually tell Russians no. Yes, you will lose people, you will lose territory, but you will go your way, whatever you were planning to, planning to go. The resilience of, of Ukrainian economy. Uh, we are not naive, we understand it wouldn't, be survive, wouldn't survive with your assistance, with your help, and sometimes with the direct injection of finances. We are in debt to you, but I believe that your Ukraine managed somehow to use wisely the time you bought to us. I mean, European Union, NATO, all the, all the West. With, with the economy, which is growing now on, on a level 4.6%, this is optimistic. I hope to see the final, final digits somewhere in December. But if it is 4.6%, this is huge, uh, huge achievement of Ukrainians and those ones who supported us all this time. Same with the society. We managed to adopt, absorb 1 point plus, I don't know, 1.5 or 1.6 million people in Ukraine who did not flee to, to European Union to add up to your migration crisis. 
it is not easy for us, for our economy, but we managed to find the place for them and the, and the jobs for them. So this, this part of the resilience of society, of society is here. Uh, and we also managed to keep the priorities, the foreign policy priorities. The foreign policy priorities, resilient as well. We embedded in constitution, which is a very rare thing in the world, that we are going to go to European in NATO. I just hope that European Union won't Brexit itself in the different directions before we come, because you know we will have to change constitution again. It's not easy. It's a very difficult, very difficult process. On decentralization, as a second part of it, uh, we learned from the experience of of uh, Poland, Germany, and decided that we have to go and give more rights to people on the ground. The decentralization process. That's actually what we're offering people in the, in the east of Ukraine under occupation. We are telling them that this is something. We can, give, we can give you, we can offer you as a society that if you want to build the new Ukraine with us, you will have new additional rights, you will have new additional funds, so you will be able to develop whatever you believe is worth developing in your part. So be with us, this is our offer, and we will do it all across Ukraine and as well in, in the east of Ukraine. We demonopolized, it's not decentralized, but it's actually demonopolization. We even demonopolized the corruption itself. No, we, we, we're allowing uh, so many, so many uh, new uh, businesses to grow, so many new micro-oligarchs to, to, to spring out. So they, we believe that with this decentralization and creating the playing field for the economy, we'll be able to finally build the uh, civilized economy which was one of the curses of Ukraine, you know, this oligarchization, which you, you, I understand how it started. We do remember that when you have a huge factory which covers, I don't know, half of, half of, of Soviet Union production and you become an uh, uh, owner of it with different ways, you immediately become oligarch. If you have such a huge factory, you by, by, by definition the oligarch already. So we didn't, we didn't have this many small and medium enterprises to which we were referring, but this is a very important way of developing our society. Uh, same, same with uh, fight against corruption. We built such a rigid system to fight corruption, I'm curious that we still have it. We have so many different organs to, to fight corruption, at least four major new agencies. We have special court, which is only, which the only sole idea of existence is to fight with the high corruption uh, cases. We have special part of the corruption anti prosecutor's general office. We have the uh, system which in theory allows us by mathematical formulas compare the income and, and, and expenses of each and every person which has to be uh, controlled. It's not just for the, about the uh, members of government as myself. I have my wife sitting in front of me checking the telephone which is if this telephone would worth more than three and a half thousand euros, we will have to record it within electronic registry. If you have jewelry, which will cost you, and Babushka gave it to you some hundred years ago, you will have to register it. If you fail to do it in 10 days, they will start investigation investi to investigate you. If you fail the investigation, the criminal case will be brought. So we, we try to build all these systems. We hope that will, they will work at the end of the days. Same, same with transparency. We, we built system which we're now selling to our neighbors, the so-called Prozoro, which is, we can call, we can, can refer to Zoro, remember, for those who, who remember these movies, 
And at the same time, in Ukrainian, this means purely uh, transparent. So we're using this uh, Prozora man, and we managed to at least over the year save $3 billion just of use electronic, very transparent system to which we, we attribute now all the, all the uh, whatever we buy, including the military and security complex. So we hope that with these with this, uh, three major areas, which we are trying to bring to attention of our European colleagues, we will be able to build transparent, resilient, demonopolized society. And we discussed this today, and you rightly pointed that we were coming with some new ideas, what we believe that uh, Eastern Partnership for the next 10 years, what is missing in the picture? We believe that we're missing in the picture security, sometimes hard part of the security. We are not uh, comfortable with the transportation, which, is which has been uh, sort of developed within the Eastern Partnership. Because if we even understand where the, the Eastern Partnership nations and where European Union, obviously, we would come to ideas that the, the transportation is not ended up at the, at the border of the European Union, it goes somewhere. So we have to coordinate this effort. And the last but very important thing to us, energy. There is some interest towards energy. There is some focus in, in, in energy within the Eastern Partnership. We believe it has to be much, much bigger. We are now so interconnected. At the same time, we need so much energy that it, it should become uh, a part of Ukrainian agenda. At the same time, we have to warn, and we've been warning our colleagues in Europe, that the energy is being weaponized, mostly by our by our Russian neighbors, and. I'm not going to go into detail with Nord Stream 2. It is very engaged in reading. You can, you can check it all over the internet. And the new and the new ideas, Danish government just allowed a couple of days ago to continue building. Uh, we have to have new contract with Russians over the transit of gas, which are huge amounts to supply Europe. And we are coming to the new 10 years contract on the 31st of December. So all of these issues, we are more than eager to, to coordinate and cooperate within Europe, whether it is, has to be the Eastern Partnership or any other mechanism, that's fine with us. With your permission, I will stop here, hoping that we will have some, some time for the, for the questions. Thank you. And we thank both of the ministers with a round of applause. Thank you very much. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews.